0: Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys, the Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of sources of fresh water all around the world rivers lakes underground sources and to see how how delicate they are how prone they are to contamination this is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future and i highly recommend this podcast search waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app Hey guys, sorry that I took two weeks off. I very much apologize. I just got hit with a real, real deep, hard depression that I had to work through. It was like a really useful one. It was it was just my brain pumping the brakes on things, assessing things, and making sure I was going on the right path. And since then, I've I got so much stuff figured out in that time. And I have so many exciting things that are happening. I wish I could tell you about all of them. But they are incredible. Uh, the documentary is going is going really well, and that's just just the start of it. Um, I do have an opportunity for you guys um, if if you want. Really, really interesting. This is exceptionally short notice. This is for June second to sixth. So, as part of the documentary. I was going to be going to Costa Rica. I still am, but the the timing didn't work out. Going to Costa Rica in the tropical jungles um, down there to do uh, basically the, the most powerful uh, ethnogen in the world, iboga, and so it's this it's this five day retreat, and you go down, and there's these. They even bring in these African shamans to do these buoy like healing rituals and all these like. Incredible, odd things I started learning more and more about it, and part of the reason why we put it off is because we're going to go later in the year and really make sure that we have a full crew and just nailing everything because the more we learned about it, the more we realized we didn't want to half ass this thing um so so basically if you've never heard of iboga it's not something that you just do for kicks and it's not something that you do uh on your own for sure um it is uh supposed to be a deeply transform transformative experience um just just google it yourself um iboga and and just read some trip reports um and there's even there's even, I think on my Facebook page, I'll try to put a link. I was just reading um, a, a report, and it was clearly from this particular retreat. Anyway, if you decide that you want to go, and it's expensive. It's like $4,500 plus flights, which are usually about $500. Um, if you mention my name, you'll get $250 off, and then what, I'll also get credit toward, um, toward my retreat, Um, so there's only two spots left. I was going to be those two spots. Um, but those two spots are now open. And, um, so you can check it out if you want, you can go to psychedelicjourneys.com and click on retreats. Um, I'll try to put this on the, uh, the here we are podcast website, or you can write me, um, directly as well. Um, And, uh, yeah, check it out if you're interested. This is just like one of the many things that I'm doing. It's, it's, uh, it's like, you know, you save up a bunch of money to go to Hawaii or something like that. I've taken so many vacations in my life. Um, but this is not only a a trip to Costa Rica in this beautiful area, but a journey and an experience unlike anything that you'll ever do in life. Something that you're going to remember for the rest of your life uh without a doubt. So if if you're an adventurous uh person like myself and I know that's it's a lot of money as well. Uh and and I'm broke and I certainly wouldn't be able to afford it at this point if it wasn't something that I was doing as part of a documentary. But uh but maybe you're a person that uh has a bit more and maybe are are looking for something like this. So you can check it out and just make sure I mention my name when you go to book it. They'll they'll have to do a screening and everything. Um, cause it's just a small, there, there's a cap on it. That's just a small group of people. Um, but, uh, this is, this is something people do to like get off, uh, drug addiction or to figure out, um, things that, you know, confused about career path or midlife crisis stuff or whatever, like there's there's a million different um, reasons to do this, and there's a lot of reasons not to as well. There, it's it's definitely not for everybody, but um, this is legit. This is uh, uh, the the people doing this are incredible. I I've, I've been talking with them and having meetings and dinners with them, and um, as I just got more and more excited about it. I, I knew that I had to. I couldn't just half-ass this thing. Um, so there's there's more exciting information coming about that soon. But I just wanted to say the quick last-minute opportunity. If you're available June 2nd through 6th um, and want to go to Costa Rica for one of the craziest uh, experiences of your life, um, I I recommend uh, I recommend uh, checking it out and you'll be able to uh, talk to Trisha, and once you talk to her, uh, you'll you'll just know more about it. I don't know what else to say. It's one of those things like I'm not even sure. I, I, I was like, I don't think it's for everybody, but I think it's amazing for some people. I was talking with a bunch of people in the psychedelic community and different researchers that have partaken and had their lives changed in a really positive way. And uh, so, yeah, why not? Um, don't... Uh, This isn't I never planned on selling ads on this, but this is um, this is something that I actually do believe in. I believe this stuff is um, medicine that can absolutely help change people's lives. And uh, as a listener to this show, you should know that's kind of the ultimate goal of of, uh, what we're trying to do here. And I think this is a tool. So check that out if you want. Uh no big deal and uh enjoy this podcast. This is we tried something else with marketing on this one in Nashville. I had kind of a uh I'm not gonna get all into it. Um I, I just tried something else and it just didn't work out. These these live ones are really hard to pull off, but it's going to happen. I I like the podcast is getting more listeners all the time. It's just a lot of times reaching the listeners um, in, in given areas, uh, can be really difficult, which is what the laughable app is helping me do. So make sure and have that downloaded as well. But, uh, and, uh, but this is still a fantastic conversation and, uh, I I think you guys are going to like it. So I'll talk to you at the end of the program. intimate setting huh thank you guys it would be way more intimate if you didn't show up so i very much uh, appreciate this uh who in here has no idea what's uh, about to happen you just uh, you've never heard of the here we are podcast before a couple of you awesome two new fans and a liar. Uh, three new fans. So um, my name's Shane Moss. I'm a stand-up comedian. A few years ago, I started doing a, a podcast called Here We Are. I've been traveling around uh, interviewing academics about uh, their research and the meanings of life sort of stuff. And, and uh, just all things kind of related to how the brain works. And I started doing it live um, more this year, and uh, still figuring that out uh, a little bit. So, I appreciate you guys coming out and supporting it. But this is, uh, it's a really, um, it's always a really fun show, and you guys will get a chance to participate as well. I'm going to bring out a couple professors in a second, and we're going to talk about their work for a little bit. And probably about 45 minutes in or so, we'll start uh, opening it up for. Uh, for some questions and and just see how usually like one question can lead to us talking about a specific topic for five or ten minutes or whatever. But if if you guys also, if like we say something in the middle and you're like, I need to know about this now, uh, you can raise your hand like you're in, in class and, and we'll have you on. I'll probably, um, how I'll do that is I'll. I'll just have you come up or I'll walk out and give you a microphone. Um, and so uh, just some uh, quick microphone training. Um, I, uh, I have this close to my mouth, but I'm talking over it uh, rather than poo, poo into it. And, um, so that will help. This is being recorded. There's going to be, um, about, uh, uh, we have about 50,000 listeners a week. Um, two of them are in Nashville and, uh, and, uh, so, um, so yeah, and that's, uh, that's about it. So, um, we're about to get started and this is all, everything that I've said so far is not going to be a part of of the podcast um what I'm going to do I'm going to introduce the show uh why don't you guys go crazy and make it sound like there's 20 people in here huh and uh and then um and then we'll bring out the guests and uh and this uh, this is just this is if I were if I were up here right now um doing like a stand up show uh I would be nervous about this number of people to be perfectly honest with you but because of the format of this show because it's very casual and conversational um it it just has like a really great feel um for uh this kind of a a vibe it's kind of like we're just sitting in a living room uh, having an interesting conversation about uh, some bigger ideas and so i think you guys will have a lot of fun and so with that um Uh, Let's get started. Let's see. I want to make sure that I plug everything that I need to. Third Coast. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. How are you doing? (laughs) Thank you. Hey, how about a hand for Third Coast Comedy Club here in Nashville? All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, We're very lucky tonight. I have uh, two fantastic professors from Belmont, uh, here joining us. We have uh, professors uh, Patrick Morse and Clancy Smith joining us today. So give them a hand for coming out. Maybe they're coming. They don't know their cues. There they are. Hey. You're fine. That'd be funny if I made you walk around. No, do it again. you got to come out this way. Um, All right. Well, have a seat, fellas. Uh, One, thank you, guys uh for joining me so i wanted to do just a little bit of an experiment um so before we get to some of some of clancy's work patrick can you talk a little bit about um some of your current work
2: yeah absolutely so generally i study social and personality psychology so what we're talking about is, uh, if I want to understand how you're behaving, I should probably try to look to how you are as a person, what your personality is, and I should also look at the context that you're in. So specific to personality, I've done some work where we consider different people's personality, how accurate we can be when we perceive them, uh, how long it takes for you to form a judgment about somebody's personality, uh, and if that perception changes over time or not, and you know how that'll drive your decisions about somebody. Uh, and then I've also been doing some work lately on intentional personality change. So say you just have like a terrible personality and you want to be better, is that something you can do? Uh, I'm afraid I don't have much updates on that. The jury's still out, was like that research is still kind of ongoing. So.
0: I might be a terrible person forever. Everybody will. You might sure. be stuck with it. Yeah. I wanted to. Uh, I want to try something a little bit different. Can you? Can you break down um, quickly? Because we've talked about this on the podcast a, a number of times, but uh, this is something that always seems to interest people. And I, every time I try to have a new angle with it, and uh, but if you could uh, quick break down. Um, the, the kind of big five personality traits.
2: Sure, sure. So, when we talk about personality, if you think about flipping through a dictionary and finding every word that could possibly describe someone's personality, there's about 17,000 or so. We know that because Gordon Allport back in the day made his grad student count. And he came back and said, There's about 17,000. Like, am I done? And so I got his PhD. Uh, after that they did all these factor analyses and they basically said here's a survey with all these thousands of personality descriptors everyone take lots of them and they found that people who scored high on certain words also scored high on other words so if I gave you the term uh, outgoing and gregarious and sociable if you score high on gregariousness you're probably going to score high on sociable and so on and so forth so what they found with that is we can reduce these 17,000 or so words to five. And in study after study after study, whether it's from the dictionary or whether it's asking people how they describe personality, whether it's the states or elsewhere, we tend to come across five Depending if you look at Chinese culture, you tend to come across six, they throw in like humility and honesty, but typically we talk about the big five.
0: The Chinese have an extra personality
2: trait. Yeah, yeah, they have one more than us. Yeah. Oh, so lucky. We're, we're lacking, I
0: guess. Uh, well, I don't know who's lucky. Is it lucky to have a lesser Well, it, their
2: additional one is humility and honesty, so.
0: Yeah, we don't need that. It's in America. not a very American thing. Humility and honesty, what's that stuff? <laughs>
2: Well, America has a sixth, too. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so
0: the the big five that
2: we generally talk about, you can think of it in terms of a mnemonic to memorize it is ocean. So openness, so how open to new experiences you are, uh, whether we can break that down into, like, intelligence as part of openness or uh, trying new foods and exploring culture and aesthetics is openness. Um, We've got C is conscientiousness. So that's basically talking about how much of a rule follower you are. So high conscientious people tend to live longer because when the doctor says, "Hey, you should take this medication so you can live," they're like, "That's a good idea. I should follow that rule." Uh, e is extroversion, so how outgoing, gregarious, social, assertive you are. A is agreeableness, uh, so these people they just kind of go with the flow. So you find agreeable people tend to be higher on addiction because they give into peer pressure. They're like, "Hey." Do you want to try this drug? And they're like, yeah, okay. Um, so they don't actively seek it out, but when people offer it, they are agreeable and amenable to it. And then the last one is N, neuroticism. So that's kind of general negativity and anxiety, and that's generally considered like the bad one. But we can't say that because some people are neurotic and everyone's great,
0: but neuroticism is the bad one. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I. I like the idea of agreeable people being like, hey, you want to feed the homeless? Sure. You want to do heroin? You bet. Just whatever it is, they're just on board. Um, so I wanted to, uh, so I, I know I've, I've been tested and I know where I fall on these personality traits. We've talked about this a number of times on the podcast and I've taken various tests and there's like Facebook things you can do as well. There's a million different ways to to uh, to test this, and I talk about this in in my um, in my show, A Good Trip. So, uh, did it, did anyone see that by chance? Um, okay, if you saw the show, you don't get to answer. I was just curious. For those of you that don't know, um, so you've you've now heard me talk for uh, about five minutes, um, not even, and I'm I'm curious what your impression is. I want to go through uh, the list. I, I didn't know the ocean. I I usually. And you, can it's it's you can do canoe
2: <laughs>
0: if it's easier what's that? you can do canoe if it's easier alright let's canoe it um, so, so conscientiousness um, if, uh, I'll, I'll have you say whether I, whether you think I'm uh, high, low or, low, or in the middle so clap if you think that I'm high in conscientiousness clap if you think I'm low in conscientiousness clap if you think that I'm in the middle in the middle. I'm exceptionally low in conscientiousness. I'm a very it's good messy, that the personality psychologist got it right. <laughs> person. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you've also had a chance to talk with me a little bit more. True. So so far, you guys are uh, a little off. <laughs> uh, better better luck with the next one. Um, agreeableness uh, high. Okay. Low in agreeableness. In the middle. I am a little low in agreeableness. I like arguing with people, and I'm a skeptical person. What what was your vote on that? I would have guessed kind of average, because if you think about each of these big
2: five traits, you can break them down into facets. So within agreeableness, there's going to be some of this amenable to new ideas, but there's also, if you're the type of person that tends to get in debates or tends to challenge people or have difficulties with authority, that would kind of put you on the low end. So when you take the average of all those facets that would put you somewhere there. So I think maybe all of us got caught up in that drugs thing. And so we said, yeah, high agreeableness, but there's yeah. probably some other cues that, that balances out and actually pulls you down to middle or low.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I have no respect for authority whatsoever. Um, uh, let's do uh, extroversion, high and extroversion, uh, low and extroversion, and in the middle. I'm in the middle. You would think as a performer that I'd be high in extroversion, but I'm, I'm just as happy being by myself. Uh, all right, two more. Uh, neuroticism, a high in neuroticism, a low in neuroticism, and in the middle. I, I'm in the middle, and you're a dick for thinking that I am high in neuroticism, uh, it's just you just said that that was the bad one, and then you're like, I bet you're the bad one. Good um, point. And then uh, what am I missing? What's the last one? Um, Conscientiousness, okay. agreement oh, oh yeah, openness. High in openness. Yeah, you're right. I'm exceptionally high in openness. Um, all right. So um, so we're going to be we're going to be exploring um, some first impressions and some uh, personality stuff, and then we're we're going to be uh, blending this together with. Um, with some of Clancy's work and I'm also uh, this is I have this whole podcast I always have if you've heard it before uh, these are very loose kind of free-flowing conversations so I never know exactly where it's uh, going to go and that's part of the fun Um, Clancy can you talk a little bit about some of your work
3: Uh, yeah sure Um, uh, there's two very different topics that I cover one of them is more of a guilty pleasure and one of them is for like the more academically rigorous people in the world um, more academically rigorous one. I uh, I deal, it's kind of like first impressions actually. I deal with the um, uh, the concept of belief and uh, what a belief is and, and, and how it affects the way that we experience the world and how it affects the way we act in the world in a sense. Um, so for a long time, for example, um, people thought that a belief was a like a statement or proposition something that you could say is either true or false by comparing it to the world so you could be like i believe that the easter bunny is real this is false Spoiler. Sorry if anybody still had their heart set on the hey. didn't want to like ruin anybody's childhood. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I believe uh, uh, there are twelve inches in a foot I think This is true or something like this. But um, uh, in the early twentieth century, there was a, a group of American philosophers, and that's actually not an oxymoron. We do have philosophers in America, believe it or not, and they're actually not too bad. You know, all things considered, um, they came up with a very different uh, idea about belief, one that uh, I find infinitely more intriguing. Um, which is that beliefs usually don't operate like that. They are usually more like um, habits of conduct, uh, predispositions to act in one way rather than another, mostly unconscious, in fact. So, like, as an example, I used to go hiking back when I was young and... um, you know, had muscle mass. Before I started teaching and my hair fell out basically, I mean, when I still had energy about me, I would go and like hike. Uh, one time I was hiking in Acadia National Park in Maine and I was like going, I had a pretty good clip and everything, and I moved some bushes aside uh, and right in front of me was this hundred foot like sheer drop like into oblivion, like it was ridiculously far. In that moment, I didn't say out loud the statement, I believe in gravity and I believe it's gonna drag my ass to the ground and kill me on those rocks. I didn't say that, I didn't even think it. What I did was I just sort of backed the hell away because my belief uh, in gravity was kind of operating already. You know what I mean so it's already in there, and it's already moving around and it's already conditioning the way that I act in that kind of sense, so like uh, I believe that you should treat your elders with respect uh, at least until they turn out to be total assholes, and then you can stop doing that but like you know your, your first like knee jerk reaction to be to treat them with respect when I meet an elder, whatever that is i, I you know I don't think that statement I don't say that statement I just you know I do, I do something I show respect, I bow my head, I shake their hand, I do something like that I don't think about it it just sort of unconsciously um, sort of you know, flows out of me and conditions what it is that I I do in the world. So beliefs in a very real sense, in this theory, according to this theory, really condition the type of people we are because it conditions how we interact with people. It conditions how we uh, deal with novel situations and it, it also conditions how we experience the world. Uh, So that's sort of the more academic stuff. But the guilty pleasure stuff is the stuff I've been doing recently, which is basically pop culture and philosophy. Um, I've I've always been a huge fan of pop culture in general, just, you know, popular music, TV shows, movies, and stuff like that. And so I've been working with um, several different organizations to kind of, like, flesh out some of the... uh, Philosophical themes that are sort of hiding in plain sight. And like it was like 10 years ago or something like this, all these books started coming out. You can like Amazon search these things. If, if something exists, they wrote a book that ends with and philosophy. So like there's The Simpsons in philosophy, there's The Matrix in philosophy, there's Tattoos in Philosophy, Subtitle, I Ink, Therefore I Am. So, it's ridiculously <laughs> awful, but whatever. And so like yeah. <laughs> blues in philosophy, whatever, yeah, coffee in philosophy. So um, a, lot of, a lot of my research uh, lately has been to sort of um, uh, use popular culture as a kind of gateway drug in a sense, you know, to get people hooked on philosophy by demonstrating, like, look, if you like The Sopranos, there's this whole book about Nietzsche and Plato and Aristotle and all the different themes that come up in this stuff. And every year I, I present one paper at, um, it's called the Dragon Con at the uh, in Atlanta, there's like 25,000 plus people, you know, conference thing, and like five different hotels, everybody's in like cosplay, dressing up like Darth Vader and stuff like that, and I present academic papers on different sort of sci-fi fantasy topics every year to try to get a lot of people interested in that kind of stuff.
0: I'm glad you're breaking the belief that academics are a bunch of nerds. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, and this isn't um, uh, this isn't like your work, it's actually just just a uh, um, fact, I guess, but the the, uh, uh, the X-Men was written with this in mind, which I had no idea yeah. until you pointed me towards this, but uh, as as someone who uh, has always been... Uh, X-Men's the, the only superhero, st- and Batman, mm-hmm. um, but X- X-Men's the main one that, through my life, I've, I've been into, and I'm excited to see the movie Logan, and I never knew um that some of this was based on uh the civil rights era yeah it's true i mean like we get we have a new
3: x-men movie coming out every like three months it seems like so you get the impression that the x-men are something that just came out recently but like as soon as hugh jackman you know showed up shirtless everybody was really excited about it but before then it didn't actually exist but actually it came out i think it's roughly the same year 1962 1963 something like that basically like right around the same time that king delivered his eye of a dream speech and There was, like, um, uh, the the original writers... I mean, this isn't just people, like, reading into it. The original writers were trying to deal with civil rights through uh, humans versus mutants sort of thing, and you had, like, the Professor Charles Xavier doubling for Martin Luther King Jr., and you kind of had Magneto doing the whole Malcolm X thing, and so it was a way to, like, get kids... Can you explain... Yeah, it was really like the general, you know, like um, Professor X is like, you know, uh, uh, turn the other cheek, uh, love thy neighbor, et cetera, and so forth, engage in civil disobedience. Uh, Malcolm X's famous quote was something, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something to the effect of something like, uh, uh, be kind, be courteous. Uh, respect everyone and obey the law but if somebody puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery, sort of that kind of shtick so I, I, theoretically maybe they were sort of out to achieve the same kind of goals but they went about it very differently and so some of the original writers of X-Men tried to capture that dichotomy you know, so, uh, through a medium that kids would appreciate, through a medium that, that you know, uh, adults could appreciate, uh, but you know, sort of like a, a facade for like, the big civil rights issues that were coming out at the time.
0: That's amazing. I'm, I'm going. I'm it's going weird. to be uh, yeah. viewing it much differently now. Yeah. When, when I watch those movies, um, I. So you talk about beliefs. You talk about um, how you greet an old person, which your your kind of first impression your first instinct, which for me is I sneer. I mostly sneer yeah. at old people. Yeah. Um, so we're we're a little different there, um, but or or stopping and and. Uh, uh, not falling off of a cliff or whatever, um, which i also don 't believe in um, but but uh, but what about what about uh, some of these some of these more complicated more uh, what about the kind of beliefs where you 're sitting around thinking about who to vote for is something that that uh, many of us have to all of us kind of have to consider and deal with um, or um, beliefs about certain um, certain laws, certain rights for other it, it, so, something a little more complicated than just kind of a base level instinct. Um, do you think about them in the same way yeah, I mean in a sense, according to this theory from these American
3: philosophers, like uh, a lot of our beliefs about the world come from the culture that we 're in, so um, according to this theory, and there were some studies, John Dewey was kind of a psychologist, social psychologist, he looked into some of this stuff. Uh, we get a lot of our beliefs from our immediate surroundings. And when you think about like the, the age in which we start gaining our beliefs is usually you know like four or five six years old or something like that we start learning a lot when we're very young but this is also like at least 10 years before anybody has a brain that kind of functions you know like you have to be at least 15 to be able to think at all basically so like you know so 15 year olds minimum, really bare great minimum thinkers. after that after before that it's like it's like all bets are off and so like we're just sort of like like sponges like we, we we absorb like the beliefs and the zeitgeist in the milieu around us like from our parents and from our teachers and from our friends and everything like that so by the time we're a voting age a lot of that stuff has already been sort of cemented in us, and we, we act without even realizing that some of these uh, beliefs, some of these habits of conduct, some of the choices that we make between Republican and Democrat are just already so deeply ingrained in us that it takes a lot of work when you turn like 16, 17, 18 to like start thinking outside of the box that you've been
0: in. I doubt that this is scientific in any way. <laughs> I just, for whatever reason, have this in my head of something that I saw um, about how Um, A lot of your political beliefs, like whatever religious or political belief or whatever it might be, by the time you're eight years old, for whatever reason, I have this weird eight years old arbitrary number in my head. Is there actually uh, – you don't know what I'm talking – like you You haven't actually seen any any, – We
3: just looked at each other. uh, Yes, eight
0: <laughs> yeah it, so it, is, well, because you talk about like fifteen years old yeah, is, yeah. is there uh, has there been any um, a, any studies that that you can recall off the off the top of your head where where they're actually um, testing people's um, ability to change some of their belief systems or ingrain new beliefs or new information at different ages and seeing if there is a different i mean my my instinct my original belief would be um kind of the uh can't teach an old dog new tricks the older you get the harder it is to change someone's belief is is there are there any kind of landmark kind of age rate ranges besides just like 15 years old where where there's a notable difference? You say?
2: No, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with like a definitive study or a definitive age range, but this idea that uh, dispositions, whether it's beliefs or personality, gets harder to change as you get older, that seems to be supported by this general idea of this cumulative continuity principle. So this idea that the way that you are, it just kind of accumulates and accumulates and accumulates. So you're more the way that you are as you get older and more stable as you get older than when you are when you're younger. So if you look at least in personality change, so we, we do develop as we go. It's not always intentional or volitional, but we do develop and we mature. And you see a lot more change in the teenage, early 20s, emerging adulthood range than you see in older adults. A lot of the rates just kind of level off. And then you see some things change when, like, oh, I've got five years left of life. Like, time to do something new. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would imagine it's going to be a similar principle in beliefs or values or attitudes. But I don't know what age that I...
0: Well, just because I would think that, um, that, I mean, I said eight years old, but just uh, my... Uh, my instinctual kind of thought on it is that puberty would be a big shift when you're kind of going out on your own and kind of distancing yourself from your parents just a little bit more and and more uh, involved with your peers. It would seem like there would be some kind of almost built in flexibility um, at that time, because your environment's almost shifting and the, uh, uh, what is important to you um, kind of in your social environment is shifting and then again it would seem like you know around the college years around the kind of when you're leaving the home and you're starting th- this this big milestone transition in your life this is, this is around the age that people are uh, I mean an easy one is experimenting with drugs certainly but you're also experimenting with with sex or getting a tattoo or a whole new hairstyle or dressing different or getting into different bands. Um, so are there, and then you hear about like a midlife crisis Mm -hmm. too. Um, are, are there, and, and again, I, I often am in the habit of asking, uh, questions that people don't have answers to. Uh, just, it's just interesting conversation and yeah. you don't have to be like, I know this answer. Just your thoughts on it. But um, are, are there these kind of moments in life that are exceptionally um, transitional and, um, yeah, I guess just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean,
3: I, I think so. And I think, I think you hit on a really good one.
0: And what's kind of interesting is that I think
3: like different cultures and different nations have different um, years. Like, in America, for example, like, when I was in elementary school, I knew what was coming next. That was high school. My parents said I have to go to high school. When I was in high school, I knew what was coming next. I had to go to college. But then you graduate from college, all of a sudden, like, the next stage in that, like, you know, straight rail, like, the train is just going in one direction. There are no turns kind of thing from when you're a child. You know, sort of know what's coming next and next and next, like, high school and college. And Then as soon as, like, you hit 22 and 23 or whatever it is and you graduate from college, all of a sudden it's, like... That's it. Like, that's all that you had planned. Like, after that, it's kind of up to you. And so people actually have some sort of like existential crisis. Am I like 22? Crisis of purpose. They're like, oh, my God, what do I do next? Do I go back to school? It's like, this is the first time in their lives that, like, the next stage hasn't really been scripted for them. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's at that point where like I think that uh, a lot of uh, maturing happens. That that's a, sort of like a stage in which people have to actually start figuring things out for themselves. Because yeah, your your parents aren't forcing you to keep you know the same straight road that you've been on since you were like six or something like that.
0: It's uh, because I mean I guess it depends on how you look at it, but but uh, humans are. Uh, incredibly flexible. I, I mean so I guess I guess we're both as flexible as we aren't flexible yeah. uh, you know <laughs> it just depends on what angle you're yeah. um, you're viewing it from if, if people are if, um, if people are looking to make a change like I'm I would say I'm in a, like a little bit of a transitional period of my life I think that I think that most people um, are always looking to make some sort of improvement or learn a little bit about themselves. Is anyone in here done? They're just like, <laughs> I got it. I'm <laughs> perfect. No perfect people in here? Um, uh, so, so for those of us, which I think is all of us, that do want to say, in my case, um, I, I, I'm like, well, maybe I should, maybe if I picked up after myself a little better, I, I wouldn't have so many issues in relationships. Um, or... Um, another person might might uh, uh, say like a midlife crisis sort of situation where, where you're like you know what I've, I've been living I've been in this cubicle and I'm bored to death and I want to uh, people probably aren't phrasing it like this but increase my openness to new experiences um, how how difficult are these changes and are there differences within these traits are there certain traits that people um, are more interested in changing and are there are there ones that seem to be more or less stable
2: yeah so the thing that's interesting is with this intentional personality change stuff so you want to change your personality in some way for whatever reason Uh, for the longest time as a field we just thought no that's going to be associated with psychopathy Like if you want to change, if you're so insecure with yourself that you want to change, that's a problem. And there's not that many people with that many problems. So this isn't a common thing. So when people first started doing this research of wanting to actually change their personality, there were some people poo-pooing it at the outset, being like, well, that's not gonna be, you're not gonna find enough people that want that. Uh, especially in a non-clinical sample that doesn't have any sort of psychiatric disorders.
0: These were people that had never seen a self-help section before. Exactly,
2: exactly. This is back in the days before Borders and Barnes & Noble (laughs) and Amazon. Uh, But when you find when you actually do this study, and I mean, it's a very intuitive thing. We've all, I think most of us have had that experience of, I want to be more this because of blank. So I was pretty shy in high school. And then to go off to college, I just thought to myself, it's going to be a very lonely and isolating four years if I don't make that change. So I changed. And I think a lot of people can kind of think to their own examples of that. And when you do these studies and you actually ask people, you find at the bare minimum, the lowest I've ever seen, and in, in one of my studies was 50% want to change some aspect of the personality. Normally you find rates of like 75 80 90%. And people of all ages. So we've got old people wanting to change so they might be more stable but they still are in tune with things that they want to change about themselves. And then the question of, can they change? Usually the safest answer is, it depends, and kind of. So you find that people are more interested in changing things like extroversion and conscientiousness and neuroticism. Those ones come up a lot, but you can make the argument those come up a lot because they're the most intuitive. So if I asked you to describe someone's personality, you don't need to know the big five. You don't need to know the crux of personality to throw out words that, reflects how social somebody is how kind of in order and organized and on time and rule following they are or how anxious and negative those are because those are very visible apparent traits that we're just kind of all aware of so when you ask people what is it about your personality that you want to change and you need to ask that question very carefully because when you say hey what do you want to change about yourself they're like i'm hoping to drop 10 pounds no, this is a personality study. Like, we, don't, we don't care about your health or well-being, we care about your personality. Um, and so when you actually prime them to think, like, what are we talking about with their personality, those are things I think people are more aware of generally. So when you ask somebody about their personality, they can fall back on those. So you find people tend to, be, tend to want to be more social, tend to want to be more conscientious, and tend to, be want, to, tend to want to be less neurotic. Uh, And you see some changes. So the people who want those goals tend to show more of those goals. But to date, we've only seen those in kind of short-term assessments. So you ask them at one point, and then you ask them 16 weeks later, 16 weeks, because that's the length of an average American university semester. And these are studies being done on American students at American universities for for the most part.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm very proud of you for... Going from a shy young boy to here you are on stage. On my very doing own a, podcast. Doing a I mean, your <laughs> podcast. Um, so it's also funny that, uh, I mean, I guess most people tend to want to be more extrovert. Are there, are there people that want to <laughs> want to go the other way with it? Are there people <laughs> that are like, you know... I'm really annoying. Maybe I should just shut my mouth once in a while and keep to yeah, myself.
2: You find it very rarely in the extreme. So you generally want to shift in the more positive direction. So people generally think more social is better, more rule following is better, uh, more agreeable is better. It's not often you find people wanting to go in the reverse. One exception, though, is agreeableness. You find people reporting, not a lot, maybe 5 10% of a sample reporting instances where they say, you know what, I feel like I'm getting jerked around a lot at work. I want to be more assertive I want to be more combative if I need to I want to be able to stand my ground a little bit more so sometimes you see people wanting lower uh, lower agreeableness, but that's even that we don't find that often it's just not often people kind of shift in the uh, more stereotypically negative direction mm. yeah not a lot of people want to be more anxious than they currently are <laughs> I'm just not nervous enough <laughs> yeah it doesn't it doesn't come up
0: uh, yeah that that makes sense. I do that. I'm, I'm for being less agreeable. I, 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 as someone that's, uh, that's low on agreeability, sometimes I meet like super agreeable. It's like they're nice and everything, but I'm like, take it easy. Um, <laughs> and and this, is, this is me being um, probably uh, just such a skeptical person that, uh, that I do like the idea of people being like, I gave you a shot, life, and you burned me. And I'm going to be less agreeable. From now on, how do you go about changing your neuroticism levels? Uh, to be
2: determined, and it depends. Uh, so what we're finding in some of the studies that I've been on we will ask people, so what do you want to change about yourself? How are you going to go about doing it? And there are two broad categories of approaches people can take. One is to change your thinking, and one is to change your behaving. And that's pretty in line with what you find in Research on therapy and how you help people as you change their thinking so that you can change their behavior. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a big thing uh in more of the clinical fields that you come across. Um uh, how does cognitive behavioral therapy work? Uh so generally you're you looking at me. Why he just turned I to look at me? Like I don't know if the answer I think the philosopher that that. knows. No. Uh so cognitive behavioral therapy, C B T, yeah. it's Change your thinking so that you can change your behavior. So generally, if you've got a problem behavior, whether it's anxiety or smoking or whatever the case may be, you first need to self-monitor. So the idea is study yourself so that you know what the problem is and so you can figure out what the triggers to that problem are. So if I am a social smoker, I'm not, but (laughs) just to make that clear, uh, if I am, I don't know who's smoking in your 50s. Dirty, bath. disgusting Ugh. smoker types. Oh. oh no, not one of those. Say, for example, that I am, or there's someone you imagine on stage who is, and they they smoke. Stop socially, looking at me, guys. Then you ask, well, when are the times in which you're smoking? Well, every time I wake up, every time I'm hungry. So just don't wake every up. Every time with coffee. Exactly. Easy peasy. So the argument goes: once you figure out what those triggers are, you avoid those triggers. So if you are a social smoker well, shoot, I only smoke when I'm out with these people or when I'm drinking. Well, if you are aware of that, now you can kind of change your settings. So that's one approach that's worked in a more clinical context. So if people want to change in a variety of ways, they can do that. So we're seeing if that works for a more non-clinical. So talking about samples who just kind of live their day-to-day without issue, without like major issue. And can we have them figure out what those triggers are? And if they can change those triggers, uh, that might... That might help things. I had a question for you. This is from
3: philosophy. The whole, like, um, uh, first you have to sort of like self monitor, be self aware of like, you know, if if you're way too agreeable and people are like just walking all over you, or if you're just like a total ass and everybody hates you, or something like this. Aristotle had this theory that like, um, after you do this sort of like self monitoring, what you want to do is you want to sort of like aim for the complete opposite end of the spectrum and start acting in that direction. Kind of like if a stick is bent in this direction, you want to kind of pull it all the way to the extreme opposite so that it like, Spins back, you know what I mean, like right to the middle. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, like, like, so if, if you find yourself, that you're way too agreeable. I, I'm asking you. This, yeah. this, this is where philosophy, like isn't actually proven. It's theories or something. like that. Yeah. So you, you're actually almost a scientist. So I'm asking you. So like, I am 100% <laughs> a scientist. 100%, 100%. I have letters after my name. I have letters after my name. But guys, <laughs> guys, you're different. both almost scientists. Look, All here. right. Yes. I was, I was, I was curious. So, was like, so, like, like, if you self-assess and that, like, you feel that, um, uh, like, you're you're way too nice. Everybody's walking all over you. If you try to aim for being like a total asshole all the time to everybody because you're on that other end of the spectrum, what you consider to be assholery, which is a word, maybe, yeah, yeah, asshole yeah. And niche, niche, uh, it would actually be sort of like the middle ground
2: for like a normal person. Well, in in all the research on assholicity-ness, I think is the that's term. That's the term I
3: was looking for. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was scrambling. Sorry forward. for all the jargon, guys. Yeah, right. Usually yeah. <laughs> <we> technical <laughs> terms, yeah. scientists you know. we try to make it a little more accessible. <laughs> yeah, right. But all right, we'll, these we'll guys are getting a little Get showy it.
0: with right. their vernacular over here. That's the person saying right. vernacular. <laughs>
2: Um, So generally, yes, in Mm. theory, that might make sense. It's it's a nice metaphor of, oh, you bend the stick the other way to kind of work out the kinks, get back to middle. I think in practice, it's probably a lot harder because when you try to make this change, what you're trying to do is uh, you're going against your instincts. You're going against kind of your default response. So if you are in a situation and you are thinking, what is the exact opposite? Mm -hmm. Well, to do that, you need to really kick in all of your self-control resources. You really need to do something that's counter to what your default is. And in doing so, that's really taxing this kind of... We think of self-control like a muscle. So you can work out your Mm self-control, and you can build it up, you can get it stronger over time. But if you overtax it in one sitting, you're going to be sore for a couple days, so maybe you're kind of injuring it or impairing it in some way. That makes sense. Um, So if you are trying to go in the opposite direction, I Mm -hmm. think you'd be overworking that self-control muscle. And then I think when you're overworking that, then the assholery is going to... So maybe you do get that way. I don't know. (laughs) Because we're not controlling our natural responses. Um, Well, you'd
0: certainly have to do one very specific thing, probably. And it would probably be cognitively taxing. Mm -hmm. um, to, Because a lot of these habits that we have are are these efficiencies built into the brain so exactly, you don't yeah. have to sit around thinking about these things so so to to go uh, even if it's e- even if you were like uh, you know what um, I want to I want to get really into watching sports because I want to I want to be uh, make a better conversation around my water cooler and everyone is into whatever the local team is or whatever so you know what I'm going to sit down I'm going to watch every game I'm going to study most most people that actually like sports are just sitting there they're doing they're not putting any effort into it whereas if I were to try to do that I'd be like oh god and it would take some time before my brain would start doing this automatically yes and 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 this is just part of the problem with a lot of the times like we did an episode on on new year's resolutions uh recently and and, and this is one of the big problems. Is, and I still, knowing all of this research to this day, will be like, you know what? Today's the day changing everything about myself, everything I've ever wanted to do. And it's just not, you just don't have the cognitive resources for that. You don't, uh, the, um, some people call it ego fatigue or whatever. Yeah, ego d- resilience, something like that. Fatigue. Yeah. Um, you make X amount of hard decisions in a day, and pretty soon you can no longer um, uh, keep that, that same um, uh, self-control. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that would be, incri- to take a whole personality trait mm-hmm. and to go, I'm going to be the opposite of wherever I fall on extroversion, or whatever, I think would yeah. take quite a bit of work, right? Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah,
2: it did. So generally, I think something more incremental would tend to be more effective. And of course, you know, when you talk about New Year's resolutions, that's a classic one to consider because like 90 to 99%, like a a ridiculous amount of New Year's resolutions I think it's a little higher than that. Fall through (laughs) than that. So we'll say (laughs) 99.99 because there's that one odd person that it works for. Uh, They don't work because, well, one, it's because they're not incremental. They're just like... I'm going to drop 80 pounds and do all this stuff, and it's you're do it in your mind. You're doing it or you're not. So if you don't notice the increments that you have to go through, Uh, the other thing, like you mentioned, is it's just not specific at all. It's like hashtag New Year, New Me. Like, well, what does that mean? Like, it's going to be a good year. great. you are going to be a
0: better person. Yeah,
2: like, in all regards. Oh, sure. By that, I
0: mean I'm going to get really good at stealing things. Yes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So these really broad, general, subjective things are just silly. They're not measurable. There's not, like, kind of specific actions that you can take
2: yeah and you're actually hinting around this idea when we say when you set goals you want to make smart goals which of course is an acronym so uh, S is specific which you just mentioned so you want to have something specific you can do not just this broad thing Uh, I think the M is measurable uh, so you can quantify if you've done it or not A achievable I think is achievable if you can actually do it if it's realistic Uh, R might be redundant I think it's realistic. I'm getting this all wrong. Uh, <laughs> and T is timely. So if there's like some sort of timetable. So by this time, next month or next week. And when, you, when that time is one year, that's a lot of time that you can procrastinate. Oh, I'll get to it in the summer. Uh, actually, I meant September, December. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 2018. Um, so you want to have those sorts of things. And that, that tends to help, yeah.
0: Hmm. Um, so this is going to be a bit of a jump, and then we're going to uh, tie everything back together. So this is going to open up the conversation a little more. Um, just something that I'm super curious about, and we actually have never really uh, talked about on this show before. But Clancy, could you talk a little bit about some of your uh, dissertation work?
3: Uh, yeah, actually. Um, well, most of my dissertation was, was taking a look at... Um, the way that pop culture kind of uh, influences and alters human personality in sometimes incredibly creepy and strange ways. Um, One of the sort of um, key aspects of my research uh, was centered around a philosopher by the name of Herbert Marcuse, who wrote this fantastic book called One Dimensional Man back in the 60s, sort of the Mad Men era, fedoras and briefcase uh, time of like advertising and stuff like that. And um, he he likened... um, sort of the commodity fetishism our desire our need for these like really otherwise ridiculous products is kind of like a drug addiction and um, he, he died before this came out but but for me i think like the paradigm to explain what it is that he was talking about would be um pokemon are you familiar with the general gist of pokemon yeah so so the general gist of pokemon pokemon yeah, yeah I, I want to
0: put this out there. I am not familiar with the general gist of Pokemon. I can look I at you, and I'm saying I think that. you probably know a lot about it. <laughs>
3: I think you probably do more. How than dare it. you? To <laughs> the nerds. I, I actually I, I don't know very much about it, but like I, I get the general sort of gist that there are these ridiculous animals that you, you probably have to be high out of your mind to come up with like names for these things. Like, you can sort of imagine that somebody like working for Nintendo or whoever owns you know Pokemon is like you know taking uh, Jigglypuff ah, oh, yeah, it's a good one, Jigglypuff. Like, you have to be just totally out of your mind to come up with names like this. And these are the ridiculous little, like, things. that They get like playing cards and video games and just nothing that you need to survive whatsoever. But nevertheless, like... Um, it, it's, it's this ridiculous franchise that's been around for at least 20 or 30 years now. I mean, like ridiculous, like I had it when I was like eight or nine, like if I had a kid, and I'm pretty sure that I don't, but if I did have a kid at eight or nine, then like he would, or she, would be totally into it right now. And what Marcuse would say was that, that it's actually all about the tagline. The tagline is sort of central to why people get so addicted to a product that's otherwise completely useless. Does anybody happen to know what the tagline is? you got to catch them all, which is fantastic, yes. It's actually, I think, for my money, the best tagline in the history of advertising. Because you've noticed, it's an imperative. It's telling you, you have got to catch them all. It's not saying, like, you can use your free will and decision-making capabilities to catch as few or as many or none, if you like. Slight suggestion. Slight
0: suggestion. Maybe try getting a bunch
3: yeah, of yeah, them. Just get few see what happens, yeah? <laughs> but but don't, feel, don't feel any pressure. Don't, no pressure. <laughs> That's not what they do. So it's like, you've got to catch them all. And so um, this is something that I would recommend anybody doing. And this is the part that I think you might find kind of interesting from the perspective of psychology. Go to YouTube at some point and look up um, what's called pack opening videos. Um, pack opening videos, if you're not familiar, and I really hope that you're not, because it means that you probably have a life at all, just like a life, like you have friends and you're not like ostracized from society in general, like a sort of social leper. Um, sorry,
0: pack opening. Sorry, if anybody's
3: in there <laughs> Not casting stones, but so the um, pack opening video is basically like you see somebody opening a pack of uh, Pokemon cards or something like that, and they, they, they go through one, it's a normal card, basic, they have it, they have it, they have it, they have it, but then the next pack they do it again, and all of a sudden they get this like the super rare Pikachu gold edition or something like this, whatever it is, and like they flip out, like you hear grown men Screaming at the top of the lungs, I got it, I got it, oh my god, I got it. Like, it's just echoing, deafening across the room. And I think to myself, like, we, we really, like, analyze what's going on in that situation. Like, so you're taking out, like, a glossy piece of paper... That's all that that is. It's a glossy piece of paper that costs you like 12 bucks to like, you know, purchase in the first place with a ridiculous creature on it with a ridiculous name for a ridiculous game based on a ridiculous franchise. And it's able to elicit the sensation of, "Oh my god, I got it. I'm flipping out. It's fantastic." It's the kind of situation where like you would expect more if you like found out that like Um, like like your parents died in a plane crash and then all of a sudden somebody comes to your door and they're like, hey, listen, your parents are still alive and they're searching for you. You're like, yes, fantastic, my parents are still alive. Or like, oh, you know, like we said that you had cancer. We were wrong, it was just a shadow. You don't have cancer. Yes, I don't have cancer, I'm gonna live, something like this. But you get the same reaction when somebody opens a pack of Pokemon cards, which is a fascinating thing to look at because what's going on there isn't just... Uh, purely intellectual. It's not just like the person's really happy. When you get that excited, something physiological is going on, like, like endorphins are firing. I mean, like, you are incredibly happy. And when you come out of the womb, yeah, when you're born, you're screaming and stuff, but you're not screaming because you can't wait for the next Pokemon card to come out. That's not why you're screaming. But between like the age of zero and the age of 35 or 40 or whoever the oldest person is, at some point the advertising and the corporations and the, the, everything behind, the whole machine behind Pokemon has been able to influence you to the degree that it actually elicits a Physiological response, like your brain chemistry, has in some way changed to elicit that kind of like heightened, super happy response when you open up
0: something so ridiculous as like a Pokemon
3: card or something like
0: that. Well, it's interesting from a from, from kind of a neuroscience perspective of of how how addiction would work because you're looking at uh, so you get some reward and dopamine's released or whatever, yeah. and uh, and then and then you're you're going after this same. Uh, reward next time and and you get the reward again and it's diminished and um, and, uh, and and then it becomes this motivator you know once you get this reward but the thing is if you get the reward a hundred percent of the time um, or if you get uh, they'll test rats or uh, marries of other context for this but but they uh, if you get the reward a hundred percent of the if you get the reward 0 percent of the time, You'll give up. If you get the reward 100% of the time, uh, you'll be bored with it. But if they give it to you 50% of the time, so a rat hits a lever or whatever, and 50% of the time the reward comes out, the other at times it doesn't, and this actually motivates them more. So dopamine becomes the motivator um, after a while, that the dopamine release, and then you go, oh, I know what to do here. At first it's the reward, and then it kind of gets moved back in the process. Um, and so, but if you train it that, train the rat that like it doesn't know it's all random and this is a chance it really spikes up in the dopamine much more than if it's like ah I know what's going to happen I'm going to go over there and hit that lever and the thing's going to come out or it's, or it's not going or or I know it's not going to come out. But if you don't know, and so that's what Pokemon's yeah. doing. You're sitting there like, uh, yeah. and then all of a sudden, <laughs> whereas if just every card was a new one, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, this is garbage. Exactly. And, of course, it, like- and, and you think you want the new card yeah. every time. You think you'd be thrilled by this, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't.
3: Exactly, yeah. And it, 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 the, the whole system is structured that way, because like you know, the really rare cards are like one in every 1,000 packs or something like that. And of course, there it is possible to eventually actually achieve the goal, like you have, in fact, Caught them all, or something. You you you, you got to catch them all, and you do at some point. So like, obviously, Nintendo, whoever makes these cards, would just immediately go out of business. That's that's how they react to that. But no, what they do is they come up with like the next wave. So then you have that sort of like the euphoria and then the drop. Then you have the crash and then you get the euphoria building up again as the next series of packs come out. And this is how people can like stay addicted to, in a sense, products for 10, 20, 30 years. And something as completely inane as Pokemon can stay in business for like a ridiculous period of time.
0: And I mean, I I get why that reward works, but I don't get mm-hmm. is why you then have to record yourself opening the pack. That's, no, it's beyond that's me. That's more on a disorder kind of a level. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole study that needs to be made about these people. I, I,
3: I watch it. It's, it's, I, I watch them all the time. I don't really know much about Pokemon, and I, I just sort of watch them because it's. I get the same sort of like what, what's, the, what's the, the German term, Schadenfreude, or something like this. Scheidenfreude. You know, like, oh yeah. And it's a, because the, the, like human train wrecks. I mean, it's like it's like it's like watching like a train wreck in slow motion. It's the same reason why like people start like like rubbernecking on highways when there's a crash on. The the other side of the road i just can't take my eyes off it i get the same sensation watching those packs that like i get when i see like ice skaters in the olympics like fall on their asses or something like that there's this immediate reaction to catharsis i'm like oh my god you i thought my life was bad i mean you know at least i'm not doing a pack opening video because it's it's, it could always be worse i think i could be one of these guys getting really excited about like pack opening videos
0: you gotta work on that agreeability i know know.
3: Uh... (laughs) i'm not a very nice person
0: (laughs) Um, yeah. Can you talk about some of uh, the the work with cults um, that that you did, or, or some of your ideas about about cults? Yeah, no, it's it's this sort of like um, this sort of an
3: ongoing um, fascination for me. I don't have answers. I just have some interesting questions that have been put to me over the years. I also teach sort of comparative religion, um, and in comparative religion, which sometimes is thrown under philosophy, sometimes. Um, you, you teach the big five, right? You got Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam and Judaism. Those are the big major five world religions. And one of the not, topics... Not a very fun acronym for... No, I don't talks, even know. Like... I don't know what it would be. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't, it, 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 Somebody did not plan that out particularly well when they first originally came up with all of these names for the religions. You want to have something, you know like smart or something, whatever it is. Yeah, you want smart Or better. ocean. Yeah, or ocean. That's a really good one. Thank you. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. I'll try, I'll try to change the names of the major world religions just to make you feel <laughs> better about yourself. Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. But yeah, like so So, um, it, what constitutes a cult? This is something that, for some reason, my students are always fascinated by, what constitutes a cult. And you think, like, you know, we, we're, we're children of Hollywood. So when you think about cults, you think about, like, people in black robes, like, chanting satanic... With daggers? Is that just me? Am I the only one that actually thinks about cults in this way? But you know what I mean, like cults, like the hooded person, yeah, or, yeah. you know, something like some I, know, crazy.
0: I, person I, like. I feel like if you were, if you were like. Yeah. Casting for a yeah. uh, cult character. Who, who would you who that, would you cast? Who would yeah, be the ultimate would, like the cult? I don't know who, you, but but yeah. I definitely I like the idea of like a hood and like kind of a dark. Yeah, sort of yeah, like you got a, it, you got it, sort of like it, a thing it, over your yeah, face, like, like Freemason yeah. kind of like yeah, Freemasons. That's and perfect. And they yeah. take their things off and pee on one another exactly. or whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait, wait, where did it's that... what they're doing. Um... <laughs> <laughs> of all the
3: possible... Very Rorschachian. Of all the possible things that you could have come up with it was like urinating on... Okay, it's fine. There, yeah. there,
0: there, there, there's there's these odd ideas that, yeah, that they're a, like... They jump all in there sometimes. ...politicians doing these incredibly embarrassing things so that they can control them. Yeah, totally it's, fine. It's, it's not it's my jam. I just find humor in the idea. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah, heard that before. But um, like, so like what, what, what constitutes a cult? Basically, it's also asked the question like what constitutes a religion? Like who... Is there some like panel out there? that decides when something finally becomes a religion? Like, is there, like, a group, like, you have to, like, fill out forms and, like, send it in and be like, finally, you're a religion. Like, you know, at some point, you know, Christianity was considered, like, you know, a sect of Judaism, or in some circles, it was definitely considered a cult by people that weren't really into Christianity. They're like, ah, this is a cult. You know, everything is, every major world religion has at some point in its history been called a cult by somebody else. But for some reason, there's a big difference between Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, than, like, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster.
0: Well, isn't it just kind of this breaking point of? Isn't it? I mean, it's the same as when a band has a cult following, as opposed to when it's just you two or or whatever. Yeah. Um, like I was, I was saying earlier, I'm such a hipster. I liked Jesus before he was cool. <laughs> um, I liked his I liked his old work, but before he got all popular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm a hipster Christian. It's, it's old. Um, work. And uh, I really thought it was going to land better, guys. (laughs) See, what I do is I make sure that only 50% of my jokes will land, because if 100% of them just knocked it out of the park, you wouldn't appreciate them as much. But because some of them fail, then when they do hit, it gets a bigger peak of dopamine rush. That's right. You can feel the euphoria It's
3: euphoric. Um, It's like, if if every day was a sunny day, then what's a sunny day? If every joke was actually funny, then what's a funny joke? That was great.
0: so 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 you're you're just hey uh, you're you're interested in this precipice of
3: yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, at what point does a cult or a sect or something I become mean, an actual religion? I mean, religion, we, we can like see, like, like modern in over. our,
0: yeah. uh, or mo- Mormonism in our modern age yeah. of, like, we have this pretty clear history of where yeah, it was yeah. certainly a cult being run out of everywhere yeah. and now then, then became the fastest growing religion in mm-hmm. human history.
3: Yeah, it's, it's that tipping point that I'm really interested in. At what point does, like, it gain the the, the requisite qualifications to actually count as, you know, like, a, a major world religion, and or does it just stay, like, a cult or something like this, you know? And I always of fascinating because a lot, and a lot of people are very defensive, right? So, especially some of the newer ones, it's like, well, look, look, I mean, like, this is talking about, like, you know, like, I love Jesus before it was popular. I was like, you know, Judaism, Buddhism, like, you know, Hinduism, like 2,000 years, I mean, like, three, three, four, 4,000 years old. So, like, you know, a lot of the people that are like members of like really old religions are like, ah, who is this whippersnapper with his, like, Mormonism and stuff like that. We, we're a religion because we've been around for 4,000 years. I mean, that's like the only reason why they have... I, uh, also, I like
0: the other extreme of yeah. it, too, of like you got to be finding the new like underground religion. Yeah. Like, oh, you hear about this cool religion yeah, that I mean, no like, one knows about?
3: It was like that thing in the news. It was about uh, five or six months ago now, like like in, I think it was Australia, I think it was Australia, where like Jedi, they were desperately trying to make Jedi a religion or something like that, and then they put sort of the kibosh on that, because, you know, like if you're a religion, you get like tax incentives and tax breaks and something like that, protections, et cetera, and so forth, so, so a group of people came together and sort of beating, beating each other with like glowing sticks and calling themselves Jedi, does this a religion make? Those are one of the questions that somebody <laughs> had to ask. I'm like, well, no, but then why? Why not? You know, wh- what, is, what is so much stranger uh, about the Jediism or whatever the heck the Nothing. name of it is, then like you know, that was a great movie. idea. Who makes? I the... wish it
0: would have taken off. I yeah. think I'm into Jedi now, especially yeah. now that I know it's it, it's kind yeah. of totally. on the fringe. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fringe. Now I see, want to get now out on the ground it's, it's floor. Up and it's up and coming. Yeah, we can work out. Something. Pokemon's really a good yeah. place to hedge your bets if you wanna if you wanna be like I was there before. Mm. It was a real religion. It used to just be a game. Get into that Pokemon. Dude, it could be. It's coming. It's coming. It's absolutely coming. Yeah. Um what kind of uh, what kind of personality traits factor into uh religiosity?
2: So that's a tough question because the relationships between personality and religiosity aren't always so clear and not always so linear. So I think when we think about the relationship between personality and some sort of outcome or some trait, we want an easy linear relationship. So if you're low on a trait, then you're low on this characteristic. So we want something that says, "Oh, if you're really shy, you're going to be really religious." but it's not so clear. Probably the thing that most often gets intertwined with religiosity is going to be openness because you're open, arguably, to this idea of believing and putting all, a lot of faith into something that we might not have clear, clear empirical evidence of. Might so, not. Might not. <laughs> yeah, trying to read the room. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> So openness, you would, I think the default is to assume somebody who's high in openness could be high on religiosity because they're open to the idea of something existing, some higher power, despite uh, a plethora of evidence. Conversely, though, if you think about people who tend to be the most religious in our lives, we probably think of them a little bit more closed-minded. They're very bound to this rigid structure. So you might have people... So the people in my life who seem more... Uh, more involved with the the church or whatever the religion may be i think of them by default as a little bit more close-minded is that necessarily the case no so you might have these two extremes so it might actually be a curvilinear relationship so if you're high or low on openness then you're going to be more religious but even that is an oversimplification because of this idea of multi-determinism so just just say oh the extent to which you're open explains if you're religious or not well, we're discounting the fact that, well, how religious were your parents? What state did you grow up in? What sort of school did you go to? Um, is it a tenure requirement at your university to join a congregation? Hypothetically so, speaking, of course. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically
3: speaking. Hypothetical
0: it's, well, it's almost, it's almost two different questions for those two uh, let, let's just use the very far extreme end of of openness. If you're, because uh, most people are in the middle, and so we're not, and, and there's no like good or bad or right way to be or or whatever. But um, just just so to exclude the majority of the population, we'll talk about the far extreme ends. I would say that if you're extremely low in openness, you're um, you're you're probably apt to just have gone along with whatever you were taught as a child and nothing's going to change your mind. And then if you're exceptionally high in openness, you're more the type to get into whatever new um, Tupperware religion thing or or new... <laughs> <laughs> new. Uh, um, <laughs> that's just silly. I was just trying to think of like weird fad thing or like culty... Uh, what's that? Am... Amway, yeah, yeah, the, that's it's kind of a cult, yeah. um, and which I guess people that are closed-minded are into that as well. And now, it, it, but because we were talking a little bit beforehand, I was just thinking about um, a lot of. Uh, I certainly, as as someone that um, tours around with a uh, show about psychedelics, I have plenty of very like new agey uh friends who I would say are exceptionally high uh in openness but and also kind of buy into what I would consider very silly um religious like um belief sy- systems and uh and and so so it's it 's almost like if you're exceptionally high in openness you're uh, you have more of an ability to accept some new thing as outlandish as it may seem, whereas if you're low you're kind of going to be uh, You know, just based on how you're raised, you're going...
2: Yeah, so this kind of blurs some of the lines between openness and agreeableness. So openness is generally going to be the more active seeking out of novel experiences, where agreeableness is just more the passive acceptance of them. So if we're talking about somebody who was raised in a very religious household and you've got a kid who's very agreeable... And it's very easy for them to just be like, yes, this is how I am. Like, I believe this. Like, this is my belief system now. Whereas somebody who is more open, if they're extremely high in openness, it's not necessarily that they would take that to heart at the outset. They'd be your types of people who would tend to. And, of course, there are exceptions. But the people who would tend to seek out uh, their different religions. So maybe they take a few religion courses at their university and figure out what one speaks to me rather than just... The one that's always spoken to me is the one that will continue to speak to me. Um, so agreeableness probably plays some part in it too. But some of these relationships are a little bit unclear, a little tenuous in, in what I am aware of. Where would like, like, I would argue that you
3: can have like pretty like rabid, dogmatically closed minded atheists too, wouldn't you? Like like people that are like so atheist that they're like almost aggressively
0: atheist. And, been and there, very close. Yeah, I've, expe- I've been that person. Yeah. I've experienced. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I think I've experienced we're sitting with it, yeah. one. Yeah, I
3: think there it is. The like, yeah. So like you know, you say, one of the criticisms that I hear, and I, I just want to know if this is valid or anything. Like if you could, if you're like a really hardcore, dogmatic atheist, are you just as uh, pious in a sense? Are you, are you just as committed to your Anti-religion, as people are that are very much zealous. I think that so their there's
2: religion? people that are. Yeah. I could speculate wildly. Yeah. I, have, I haven't read anything on yeah. this, so my answer is: I should clarify. I have no idea mm. is the right answer for me, mm. but I could speculate that yeah, you're going to have extremes in any in any sect. So whether they're extremely religious or extremely agnostic or atheist, mm-hmm. people who are strongly uh, have strong opinions want to tell you their strong opinions.
0: I mean, there's still belief systems even, mm-hmm. even, even if, if, uh, someone that's atheist or agnostic would be like, well, my belief system is founded in whatever evidence and such and such. It's still, you know, yeah, ultimately I a mean, belief you have system.
2: scientists who believe in science and data and empiricism. Right. Like how ridiculous is that?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, lunatics. Um, <laughs> So uh, th- this would be a good time to open it up for, um, for a couple questions about any of the topics that we talked to- about tonight, if, if you want, and, and no pressure, but does anyone have any, uh, any questions? This is, uh, this is Does anyone want to um, try to shoot for higher in uh, openness?
1: No, none of you. All right, sure. Hi, you kind of touched on schadenfreude for a second, and that's something that really interests me because I'm really obsessed with like bad movies like The Room or Troll 2, if you've heard of that. And yeah. <laughs> no, I just saw
0: the room recently. It's so
1: bad. But I love yeah. it and I, um I don't know, I guess to kinda of guide the question a little more, is that something to like an attraction to novelty? Because for instance I hate mediocre movies, it makes me turn my head and get bored and you know. I was just wondering if you could open up a little more about schadenfreude
0: well, I'm curious about some some of what maybe uh, the personality traits might affect. So I, I, for example, um, on Twitter, there's like a Darwin Awards thing, is which is just like jackass videos. Basically, it's just like someone lighting their balls on fire, and then their friends have to kick it out, and it's so stupid, and I can't get enough of it. Um, whereas my girlfriend just like finds it revolting that I find amusing in any like she she's not like upset that I like but she's just like I don't know why people like this I don't understand it at all
2: Um, yeah I'm trying to think uh, I haven't read any recent papers like personality the correlates of jackass or anything like so I I don't know if I can speak exactly to it but I would imagine again if I had to speculate wildly uh, I think part of that that schadenfreude is going to come down to social comparison so if you're not feeling great about yourself, one quick way to feel better, rather than go through all the hard work of changing yourself, just find somebody worse than you and just stand next to them and feel great and feel tall and feel like you don't have your head stuck in a beehive or whatever they do in the movie Jackass. They do a lot of weird stuff. So or if, even
0: like, more justified, like if, you, if like someone burns you or you feel like wronged or someone got a promotion that was yours, you know, and then some thing befalls them now they're they're. could they got drunk at the christmas party and now they've disgraced themselves or whatever and you kind of uh, there's some, some si- satisfaction in that yeah i'm sure there's plenty of literature on like revenge and fantasies and
2: ideas and ideation uh, i don't know so maybe some social comparison some revenge i would imagine those sorts of films like the schadenfreude i would speculate lower on conscientiousness because the people who are very high on conscientiousness. Not only do they want to follow the rules, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it stresses them out when other people don't follow the rules. That's interesting. I was that kid in seventh grade. I remember Mr. Miller's art class. Seventh grade, I was sitting next to Brandon, and Mr. Miller told us to be quiet. And I'm stressing the hell out because Brandon wasn't getting quiet. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, shh, stop it. And I was just so stressed out that somebody else wasn't following the rules that were clearly laid out. Mm -hmm. So I would guess, based on my own experiences, my own anecdotes, that maybe someone high on conscientiousness, yeah, high on conscientious might steer clear of that because, like, where, what's the joy in watching other people do things that aren't very
0: rule-bound? Uh, now I'm thinking about my low conscientiousness and, and <laughs> it's how, really how, stressing me out. how much I've stressed so many people out in my life. <laughs> which I just actually have. Now that I think about it, I'm just like, oh, I have so many apologies to make. Um, so thanks for the guilt trip. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, any other questions? Um, Okay, that's fine. Um, I uh, so um, to wrap up, um, uh, uh, let's see. Usually, I have this. I can put a bow on these suckers real easy, and um, and I, I, but I'm I'm trying to think of a way to tie both of your work together in this nice little bow, and uh, it's challenging. I would say the thing that I'm i'm uh yeah, oh here's something that that i i want to know from between the two of you between a um a philosopher and a psychologist uh, on on this topic of we talk about wanting to create some positive change in your life there's also this um uh very kind of cliche idea of like you just have to be yourself and um don't it 's not about changing you it 's about accepting uh, who you are, and how much of that, considering that, considering that um, you um, we 've talked about how difficult it can be to make these changes, and we 've talked about how new year 's resolutions can fail miserably, and often people can i 've had episodes before talking about how diets um, fail miserably in almost every case, and people even if they lose. Weight, they end up gaining that and more back, and then feeling worse about themselves than if they had never even tried. So, so I'm kind of wondering uh, how how much. uh, I mean, every situation is different, but just uh, some general thoughts on how much effort is worth divulging into uh, into trying to correct. When when do you know like this is this is a real problem that I that I need to change, this is affecting my life, and I can do something about it. And and when do you try to learn to just accept who you are? Yeah, when you when you look
2: for that in the literature, you very fine easily find this dichotomy between: all right, is it better to focus on acceptance or is it better to focus on improvement? And it'll from what I can tell, it comes down to the trends in the literature. So for a while, you know, why millennials get dumped on all the time is because they're the, it's generation me and well, that in part was a function of work uh, from Carol Dweck about self-esteem and they said, wow self-esteem is this really amazing thing that's associated with all these positive outcomes if you have high self-esteem, you're going to try more things and it's going to be great and as that research was picking up, people got wind of it and schools got wind of it and they said, yes, let's focus on self-esteem and that's where these very cliched ideas of like participation trophies and ribbons comes to fruition, and then as we kept doing more self-esteem research, we realized, oh, there's problems with an overinflated and unrealistic self-esteem, uh, kind of like a Justin Bieber effect. Like or you're become a real a-hole if you're just kind of built up all the time.
0: Don't you dare talk bad about <laughs> Justin Bieber. He's Not a big my fan. Presence.
2: He's listening to this podcast right now. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of this debate or this idea was if we're promoting self esteem, we're encouraging people to be who they are and accepting them. But then we find that there's problematic outcomes if you accept that you're kind of terrible. Like if you think being terrible is enough, like just being a mediocre white male Mm -hmm. turns out is generally enough in our culture. Is that really what we want to aspire to be like mediocrity? I would argue no, so I fall on the side of like there is always room for improvement, and there 's always change that you can make, and you know at times that change is to uh, to alter some sort of psychopathy, some sort of clinical disorder at times it 's just something innocuous, like I want to be a little bit more social, but I think there 's always more room for growth, so I think I'd take more of a growth mindset than just a mindset of accept what you are but that 's my opinion based on my experiences and how i 've read the literature, but I imagine there 's you know, maybe the Justin Beavers in the world are listening to this, being like, "No, my interpretation of the literature is vastly different." So there are those differing opinions.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of Justin Beaver fans really reading this literature astutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clancy, any, any, well, yeah, uh, I mean,
3: um, it's, it's a great question and, and, and an important one for the 21st century. I, I would, I think, I would just leave you with the um, famous, famous quote in Plato. Socrates said. The unexamined life is not worth living. And I, I think even though that was written like 2,500 years ago or something like that, I think it's as pertinent today as ever because we were talking about earlier, like when you're in high school, you know what comes next is college. When you're in college, you have to take out massive loans so that you can get a job, which means that there's only so many things that you can really major in because you have to make sure that you major in something that will eventually get you a job that will be able to pay back the loans you took out just to go to college in the first place. And then after that, you have to like, you know, you have a mortgage and the kids and everything. And it's, it's your turn at some point, 75 um, retire, move to Florida, and die you know and, and, you die. and then you just die, you know so they, and like it 's just over, and at no point do we ever actually
0: stop wait wait, like, wait we die
3: n- well, nothing ever really no. dies <laughs> wait, <so you>
0: just... <laughs> way to really bring it down and that. oh my God. <laughs>
3: No, I mean, not today, for God's sakes. Well, hopefully not today, for anybody. But yeah, so like, like yeah, just, it's just <clears throat> not nobody, Everybody is going to be fine. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, the unexamined life is not worth living. The idea is that like, don't just get stuck on those rails. Don't just keep doing the very next thing that's expected of you. We have so many external factors that are forcing us to major in something. We don't want to major in study stuff. We don't want to study get jobs. We don't want to be working at because we've got to make X amount of money to do this, that, and the other places we don't want to live because that's where the jobs are. There are so many external factors that are conditioning the way that you live life. It's try to minimize those as much as possible and stop every once in a while to ask, ask yourself, you know, why? Why am I doing this?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of life to live and a lot of experiences to have. And thank you guys for taking a chance on coming out to a live Here We Are podcast. I'm going to grab a drink at the bar and hang out if, if you're too shy to ask a question here. I'm sure these guys will stick around for a few minutes and uh, we can have a little conversation uh, by the bar if you want. But Um, but outside of that thank you so much for coming out how about a hand for Patrick Morris and Clancy Smith everybody thank you it's been the Here We Are podcast So, guys, I have some huge, huge stuff coming up. Uh, that's why I needed some time to just kind of reassess everything and make sure I'm heading in the right direction. I am heading in the right direction. We got uh, the the special the a Good Trip tour is coming to an end soon. I, I'm doing um, some gigs in Iowa and uh, Springfield, Illinois this week. Go to ShaneMoss.com to check that out. The big one that I'm doing, because I'm inviting some industry people and whatnot, is in Brooklyn on May 30th. If you know anyone in the New York area, New York City area, please, please, please spread the word for me. It's a fantastic show. I really need to fill up that place. It's a big venue. It's a famous venue. I want to do a lot more stuff there. And I'm hoping that some people there uh, that might be interested in helping out with the documentary, that might be interested in recording Uh, in in funding the special, that sort of thing. Then I have some gigs in Jersey, in New Hampshire, um, Athens, Asheville, and um, big stuff coming up. Just so you know, uh, the special taping, we have the North Door in Austin lined up for September 23rd. That's subject to change, but if it changes, it'll be recorded earlier than that. But I think it is going to be September 23rd is when I'm going to record the special, um, the documentary should be finished by that time as well. And we'll be submitting for festivals and then kind of continuing, um, uh, after the festival submissions, kind of still tweaking some post-production stuff. I imagine maybe adding some animation, little things like that, but, um, that's what I'll be working on over the summer as well as putting together a new show to tour with and some really, really, really huge, amazing, potentially epic stuff. I just need to make sure that everything that i that i can actually pull it off but uh before i can tell you guys um your patreon support really helps uh a lot right now we're at 69 dollars per month that i get from you guys uh i hope you're not holding off because you think it's funny that it's at 69 dollars per month um, but every little bit helps 22 uh, patrons right now i don't know how patreon works i know it helps to like have you get special things and this and that. If you're a member, I'll I'll try to sort that out at some point. I simply don't have the time. But everything that you put in Patreon is going into everything that I'm that is like the documentary and finishing that and booking the special and and um, all of those uh, and making these exciting things I can't tell you about, but we'll be able to very soon happen. Um, if you have an idea for, um, things that you'd like, if you're a Patreon, um, supporter, let me know. But, um, every little bit helps. Um, and I could, uh, definitely use some financial help right now. I am not ashamed to say, um, and I, but you know, I want to keep the podcast free at the same time and I don't want to go plugging a bunch of crap that I don't believe in, um, So, because it's my baby and I don't want to, uh, it's already hard enough to keep it going and get the motivation. It's, this is a hard part podcast to book and put together and do research for, um, especially when I have tons of other things going on. And so I can't do anything that, that makes me lose my motivation. So, um, so that's why I'm plugging things like laughable, which I do believe in, um, incredible. Like I was just on this podcast Uh, So they'll discover these new podcasts that I'm on, like uh, a podcast under our covers, which just debuted and just did its fourth episode. And one of my one of my best friends, Steve Gillespie and my assistant and friend, Rihanna, his girlfriend is um, uh, they they started this. It's called Under the Covers because it's just an intimate look at their weird, kinky, freaky relationship and the various psychedelics they do and all of that so i was on there talking about um, the the science of and uh, some some stuff evolution of love and uh and dmt so a lot of relationship stuff and some psychedelic talk and those are the things you guys seem to like hearing me talk about so you can check that out and laughable's easy. It just automatically uploads those things when when I'm on uh when I'm a guest on a new podcast, there's gonna be a bunch of them coming up because I'm going through New York and I'm trying to line up a whole bunch of other guest spots uh real soon. So get the laughable app and you can track that. And then I will also be able to figure out where I can do more live here we are podcasts um a little more successfully than in this episode meaning just getting more people in the room the podcasts are always fun to do but finding actually connecting with you guys the listeners and and finding more of you is uh is really challenging so um check out laughable keep spreading the word for me you guys are awesome those of you that listen all the way to the end it's been two weeks sorry we've had so much to go over sorry this is an exceptionally long intro and outro. But it's been a while. We, we had some catching up to do, and I missed you guys. So those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are my favorite.
1: Interior. Happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs <laughs> discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban. And all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans. And pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air. And Poppy wants a whiff.
3: <laughs> 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 oh, my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Scarface, twenty-two to forty-five. <laughs>
3: <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic. <laughs>
1: devilishly handsome, not even a little bit italian looking. So get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. One day. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs>